This is Novel Marketing. I'm Thomas Umstead, Jr. I'm James L. Rubart. And this is the show for novelists who hate marketing but still want to become best-selling authors. And this episode is our 50th, right? So we got to do something big, yeah. <laughs> cue the horns, cue the balloons. So, so we had to do something big. Uh, and so we're not going to do yet another... Uh, big Q&A extra- extravaganza. We're going to do another massive Q&A extravaganza because it's the 50th episode, right, Thomas? That's right. Um, and, and these, and have, these ha- Go ahead. These have been some of our most popular episodes. We've heard from many of you that you love the Q&A episodes. And one of the ways you've been saying that is by sending in questions. We've received a lot of questions. We've selected some of the best ones for this episode. And if you would like uh, to submit a book marketing question for a future episode, you can do that at novelmarketing.com. So let's dive right in. Let's try to get to as many of these questions as we can before time runs out. The first one is from Serena Masco. She says, what advice would you give someone who's in the process of creating two identifying brands for separate fields. So they're trying to figure out what their brand is, identify this. For example, she says one brand would be as a fantasy author, the other brand is as a graphic designer. So the question is, should she try to keep the brand similar so that it's more identifiable to the person or keep them totally separate because those are separate fields? And uh, got to read this part too. She says, thank you for making such an awesome podcast. It's one of the best ones I've ever heard. I can't wait for more upcoming episodes. We love you too. <laughs> oh, <sucks. laughs> that I'm was serena. my addition. I, she didn't say that. We, we, we love you too, sir. <laughs> serena. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. So my recommendation would be to keep these brands separate. And the reason for that is a concept called the cognitive dissonance. That's when there's two ideas in someone's head that are um, disagreeing with each other. So dissonance, you know, on a piano, if you push a key and maybe the key right next to it, they don't really go along. You have to know how to play the piano to know which keys go with other keys on the piano. Well, that's the same thing with branding. There are some things that will augment well. So let's say you're a writer and an editor. Well, that isn't dissonance. It's like, okay, that makes sense. This person's a really good writer, or I can hire them to edit my writing. The one brand uh, helps the other, and that's a harmony uh, of brands. And in that case, I'd keep them more closely aligned. But in this case of graphic designer and fantasy author, I would keep them uh, pretty separated unless you specialize in like paintings of dragons or something like that, (laughs) in which case there would be more of a way to get them connected. So what I'd recommend is to have a blog or a website for your graphic design and then something separate for your uh, writing. I, I would agree with that if you, if you can keep it separate. I, I have the, this dilemma myself because I've got two brands going right now. I've got the marketing thing going and I've also got the novelist thing going. So w- which is he? Is he a novelist who is a marketing guy or is he a marketing guy that writes novels, right? Well, in my case, it's a limited scope of people that I can help with marketing. That helps me. Um, whereas the novelist, that's much more global. You're in a very similar situation to me where graphic, your graphic artist uh, identity is not as applicable to the greater world as uh, being a fantasy novelist is. All right. The next question is from Cheryl Ricker. Uh, friendinthestorm.com is her website. And she asks, um, seeing as Facebook has changed the algorithms and lowered the priority of fan pages or like pages, does it still make sense for authors to have one? I'm assuming she's saying a a fan page. As an alternative, I'm considering starting a second Facebook page, a personal page, but then Facebook caps me off at 5,000 
uh, friends. So I suppose I'd have to start a new one every time I reach 5,000. Then again, I could copy and post a few different Miracle Writer pages. Uh, am I missing some other possibilities? Jim? <laughs> so the answer is uh, Facebook is going to die. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not going to die. I made a prediction at the start of the year. I said one of the major shifts in 2014 is going to be people leaving Facebook um, and not using it as a tool anymore. I think that is happening. Uh, it's certainly happening in the younger generation. I see it with my sons where Facebook just is, is not part of their lives anymore. On the other hand, if Facebook is used correctly, it can still be a massive tool for promotion. Motion. In your case, Cheryl, I would recommend getting a page as opposed to a profile. The page is not, you know, with a page, you, you never are capped. You can continue adding people, whereas with a profile, you are cut off at 5,000. But I will say this about Facebook, and then I want Thomas to talk about his recent experience with Facebook. Here's what's happened with Facebook. Facebook used to be a small cable operation. I'm going to use the TV analogy, where anybody could get a, get a slot on that TV uh, on the cable channel and you could have it air in prime time and a lot of people saw it. But as this grew in popularity, there simply wasn't enough hours in the day to put everybody in a prime time slot. And so what happens is Facebook said we have to limit the people that get in the primetime slots to the only the most popular. And so if you are the most popular show on that TV channel, you're going to get seen and you're going to get seen by a lot of people. The problem is it's getting more and more and more difficult. So the question really becomes, are you able to become so creative and so exceptional at your content that people are going to want to see this, which boosts as you say, the algorithms will boost the, the visibility of your posts. So um, I actually agree with your recommendation, Jim. I was not sure if we were going to agree or not. I agree as well, <laughs> uh, Cheryl, that you need to create a, a like page. Uh, and the biggest reason for that is that 5,000 is not a big number. Uh, you need to start thinking bigger in terms of what is a meaningful Facebook following. Uh, when, I want, when I consider a meaningful Facebook following, it's more in the 50,000-plus range. You just can't get there with a personal page. And because you have to remember the conversion rate of Facebook friends or likes to book sales is 1% or less. And so if you have 5,000 friends, that seems like a big number, but what is 1% of 5,000? It's what, 500? No, it's 50. It's 50. Never do math live on the air. I keep <laughs> telling myself this and I keep doing it. So that's 50 book sales. That's not a significant number of book sales. And so 1% of 100,000 is a much more significant number of book sales. And so that 5,000 cap really limits you. And I know uh, Facebook's very fun, and there's a temptation to spend a lot of time on Facebook, but really, you don't want to spend very much time on Facebook. Most of the other activities, marketing activities you can do will have a higher return in terms of the number of sales you'll have. Now, I say and this... Thomas, and when Thomas says most, he really means 99%. Facebook is not a place to sell products. It's really not. It really is a place to be social. So you're going to make more impact on staying and keeping the fans you have and interacting with them than you are on getting new fans or getting them to purchase products. Right. Now, that said, I've gotten... In the last couple of months, three quarters of a million people to my personal website from Facebook. So I wrote a blog post that went viral on Facebook specifically, and Facebook was the channel that brought me most of that traffic. So there are still ways of using Facebook. I'm not against Facebook, but I could not have done that. It would not have gone viral 
in the same way if I had posted it from a personal page because personal pages posts are limited to your circle of friends. It won't spread beyond that, whereas a page can <laughs> spread and infect, infect all of Facebook. So, But that comes down to, again, what Thomas did is he put a blog post together that's that was primetime material where people were so engaged in it that they recommend, 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 recommend. So again, it comes down to the content. You could do the same thing on YouTube. You put a YouTube video up that is just massive, major, funny, or provocative, or entertaining, or whatever it is, same thing's going to happen there. So really, you have to think it comes down to the content. Yeah, the average YouTube video gets something like 200 views. It's hardly any views. And you don't realize that because the videos you watch on YouTube get a lot more because those are the ones that spread. All right, next question <laughs> comes from Carrie Lynn Lewis. Uh, she says, another great podcast. Thanks, guys. Uh, thank you, Carrie. And we're not just picking questions of folks who say nice things about the podcast. Um, she says, I have a question regarding the Benjamin Franklin example. Uh, this is from a few episodes back. Uh, Benjamin Franklin did a number of things well, uh, but you said he did only one thing at a time. I'm an artist and a writer. What I'm hearing in this podcast is that I should probably be doing only one thing at a time when I'm writing, and that's all I do. Uh, that's the work for each day. When I'm painting, that's all I do. That's the work for the day. So, what, uh, so how would you implement uh, that I divide my work? Uh, is it better, in your opinion, to dedicate a day to each thing, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, and write on Tuesday and Thursday? I paint, for example, or should I work on each project with dedication, write a first draft to completion, then paint a painting to completion? This is something I've struggled with for years, uh, so any and all suggestions are definitely welcome. And uh, I know Jim has an answer to this, Carrie, but my opinion has actually changed since we did the Benjamin Franklin Wait episode. a minute. Hold on, everybody. <laughs> a little bit. I read a Bible verse that has just totally blown my mind. But I want to go to Jim's answer first. Oh, okay. Oh, you're going to make me go first. He, well, it, again, it comes down. This is going to sound so lame because it sounds like it's not an answer, but it really, truly is an answer. So, uh, Carrie Lynn, you have to do what works for you. Here's what I mean by that. For me, I'm doing five things simultaneously all the time because for me that stimulates my creativity. So for example, today I wrote in the morning, then I worked on a blog post later on. Now I'm doing this podcast now. Now I'm going to do a, 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 a fourth thing when Thomas and I are done recording. And so for me, I'm doing three or four things all the time because it stimulates me. Other people would go, how do you keep that all in your head, Jim? Well, I'm also the type of guy that I'm reading five or six books at the same time. And for whatever reason, that really works for me. Other people would go, no, I got to start one book and I got to finish it. So I guess I would give yourself permission to do what works for you. So focus is a very powerful thing. And I used to be an advocate of the do just one thing, which is not what I practice. <laughs> Learning to focus is something I'm still trying to practice individually. But there's this um, proverb in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, in uh, Ecclesiastes 11, Solomon's talking about the benefits of diversification. Um, he's one of the first folks maybe to talk about diversifying your assets. And a few verses after that, he starts talking about diversifying your time. And he said, plant your seed in the morning and keep busy all afternoon, for you don't know if profit will come from one activity or another, or maybe both. 
and I was thinking about this, like this is actually really wise. So sowing your seeds, that's a shot for the fences, swinging for the fences, so to speak. Typically with farming, you either get this really great return or there's a storm or something happens and the crops all die. So it's maybe a lot or a little uh, feast or famine. Uh, whereas staying busy all afternoon, that's being a cobbler or a blacksmith. You have some sort of secondary trade that's a more consistent activity. And it could be the profit comes from the one. It could be the profit uh, comes from the other. Um, or, or both. And I think that's, that's a very wise way to approach life. I think that you can get into trouble when you're trying to do too many things, though. I think, um, you know, he says diversify your assets in six or seven different places. And here they're saying basically diversify your time in two. Um, so obviously we all do more than two activities in our life. But in terms of like passions, I think if you could restrict yourself to just two passions at any given time, for any given season of your life, you'll be far more focused. You'll have that extra amount of energy and drive and attention and creativity to really succeed in that rather than uh, trying to do them all at the same time. And like Franklin, you can uh, go from one season to another. And if you look at Franklin's life, while he was he was starting to get interested in politics while he was still a scientist, you know, that he had other passions. He just had one that was his primary focus at any one season of his life. Okay, our next question comes from Lori Bentley Law, and her website is motordolls.com. Now, before we get to the question, I have to make a comment on that website, motordolls.com. I've never been there. I don't know what it is, but I love the name of the website. I mean, is that marketing or what? Doesn't it make you want to go and check that out? So nicely done, Lori. So Lori says, hey, guys, I have another question for you. With my independently published novel, I've done only internet marketing. The novel is available either from my website, Amazon, or Barnes & Noble online. I'm wondering about the viability of trying to get the book into boutique shops and independent stores and how to go about that. And then as a second question, how do I write a press release marketed to small retailers? So let me start with the boutiques uh, question. And Jim, I know you've done this a little bit, but I would start small as a test. So if your book takes place in the real world in a real location, I would start with boutiques in that town, particularly things with a tourist focus, um, because that'll be your easiest sell. If you are writing a book and it takes place in the Florida Keys, you go to a Florida Keys or you call up a Florida Keys gift shop and they're like, hey, I've got this book. It takes place in, in that same place you are. And they're like, oh, this is really exciting. I could see tourists buying this. Those are your first boutiques uh, to get into. Uh, the thing with these small retailers, though, especially the really small ones, is that they're locally owned, which means um, a mass market approach may not be effective. It's it's about building those relationships. And that's why I would focus. So you maybe you call just 10 or 20 stores and see how many of them you get into uh, in that local area. And that gives you an idea if this is something that you should scale um, I will say I know authors who sold tens of thousands of copies this way by just getting on the phone and calling retailers and schools. Uh, I know a guy who would just call up schools and corporations and get them to buy his book as their Christmas gift uh, for all of their employees. And so they just like, yeah, it sounds like a good fit for a corporation. They just buy 10,000 copies for all their for all their employees. So there are a lot of alternate ways of marketing books, um, but it's going to require a lot of uh, smiling and dialing, as we say in business. <laughs> I like that. Um, I'm, I'm, I have a pretty similar opinion to Thomas's. I guess for me it comes down to the economics of uh, – well, let me talk about the pro side for 
for a moment, and that is if you get into the right shop, you can sell book after book after book after book. Uh, in my case, my first novel is set in Cannon Beach, Oregon, right on the coast. Well, there's a small independent bookstore right there. Well, because so much happens in Cannon Beach in the book, that's a natural. Um, and so they carry the book, and that book will sell for years, and they'll keep ordering it because people come in and want to know if they have the book. On the other hand, you have to ask yourself how much money you're going to make. In other words, if you take your gas money to go in, introduce yourself, build a relationship, and then they pick up three of your books and they sell three books every you know, six months, you're not making a lot of time for your money. It's always a question of, it's always a question of if I'm not doing A, if I'm, if I'm doing B, then I'm not doing A. And you gotta figure out what are the A things I can do to promote my book. All right. And as for writing press releases, um, I don't think that's the way in. Um, press releases are actually going out of style. The new approach is to do news releases, which are targeted more than just at the press, but also at the general market. And the best book on writing news releases, if you're curious about this, is The New Rules of Marketing and PR, fourth edition. Um, but a press release from an individual without relationships with um, journalists is unlikely to get traction. That's what you hire a PR company for. You're not just hiring them for their expertise. You're hiring them for their uh, relationships because that's how that's, <laughs> that's what makes the world go around. And that's a theme uh, that you hear us talking about quite a bit. It's about who you know as much as what you know. All right. Final question is from Camille Gallinger. Uh, Gallinger. Uh, And she asks, uh, should you work uh, with a book coach? If so, when? I had a bad experience with one uh, and want to be advised about working with one if necessary and knowing when to. That reminds me of that movie I saw once. This guy didn't want to be around dogs. He's like, I had a bad experience. (laughs) I was like, what happened? He's like, I had a bad experience. (laughs) I just, I feel like I just saw that movie. (laughs) Italian Job, I think is what it was. Okay, I just watched the Italian Job again. Great So so you had an Italian Job moment with a book coach. And I can imagine a bad book coach is worse than no book coach because you're putting your dream in their hands and they have the ability to just crush it. Uh, Whereas a good book coach can really take you and help you become a success and transform your career for the better. So, Jim, what are some of your thoughts on that? Well, I would say absolutely you should work with a book coach. But, 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 Thomas is right. You, When you write a novel, you are pouring. You know, people say, oh, they're not rejecting your, you, Jim, they're rejecting your novel. It's like, are you kidding me? I poured everything that I am into this novel. Yes, they're rejecting me, <laughs> right? So it's very personal. So you want to work with a book coach that gets that, that understands that. Um, so the answer is yes. A book coach can be incredibly uh, powerful. I hired a book coach. Um, when I was just starting out, even, and I hired this book coach after I had gotten the contract for my first novel. So that tells you how, how much I believe in the idea of finding a good book coach. However, you have to make sure that they fit you. Um, you know, even, even the best professional golfers in the world have a coach, right? We need that continued person from the outside with expertise to look in but I would I would ask people I would interview them I would I would get recommendations I would not just hire somebody because they say they're a book coach the problem with being a book coach is anybody can say well I'm a book coach really huh, prove it to me see my business card it says book coach on it uh, so, <laughs> seems legit to me <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly so just take your time make sure you connect with them there are some excellent book coaches out there 
that you would not work well with and would not work well with you. There's others that you would work fabulously with. So it, it really is matching up with somebody personality-wise, skill set-wise, passion for your subject. There's so many elements that go into it. But I would say, I would just say take your time. And and I do work with uh, a very limited number of people on their books. So yeah, we know something... a good book coach. His name is James L. Rubart. <laughs> yeah, so I I have that done. I I have done that. I do that. I enjoy doing it because uh, it helped me so much, and so it's a way for me to give back. So if you'd like to talk to me about that, and I can give you some rates and that kind of thing, you can just go to. Um, Novelmarketing.com. Yeah, that'd be the best way to do it. Contact form. So, yeah, yeah, couple slots for book coaching. Uh, if any of y'all are interested, uh, reach out to us, and uh, we might be able to work with you one on one. The show has been brought to you this time by the Ultimate Crowdfunding Course for Authors. If you're looking for a way to get paid for your book before you write it, you seriously should consider checking out this course. It was actually developed by Thomas and a very good friend of ours, Mary DeMuth, based on their experience of successfully doing crowdfunding. So you'll learn how to build a tribe, the four campaign secrets of successful crowdfunding authors, the sweet rewards. How develop rewards that get traction. Kickstarter versus Indiegogo, because there's more than one way to crowdfund. Getting to 100% is certainly important, but what I really like about this course is the how do you get beyond 100% and go way beyond your goal. So if you're interested, check it out, authormedia.com slash crowdfunding. And if you have a question about how to market uh, yourself or your book, we would love to feature it in our next Q&A extravaganza. We do these about every 10 episodes or so. And so feel free to ask us a question at novelmarketing.com. This has been the Novel Marketing Podcast, giving you novel ideas on how to promote yourself and your writing offline, online, and everywhere in between.